0: Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, Henry Morgan was preparing for his first great raid on the Spanish Main. His last raid under Mings and Mansvelt was a resounding success, and now Captain Morgan and his closest allies were about to embark on a voyage that would see them gone from the shores of Jamaica and Port Royal for a full 22 months. Now, 22 months is a long time to be gone from home, especially when you're going to be in hostile waters, deep in enemy territory. Now, Captain Morgan didn't intend to be gone for 22 months. There were some setbacks and unexpected surprises. However, he knew it was going to be a long voyage, and they prepared thoroughly for it. This week, I'd like to do something a little bit different. This great raid could really be considered the dawn of the Golden Age of Piracy. And I'd like to take a step back before we set sail with Captain Morgan and look at what they were doing while preparing for this voyage. I'd like to take a look at the ships that they were loading with all of their victuals and arms. I'd like to take a look at exactly what those supplies were, what kind of food and drink they had on board, as well as what kind of weapons they were using and loading on board. This will be a step back from our narrative history and a look at the technical side of the early days of buccaneering, privateering, and piracy. This is episode number 17, Guns, Rum, Ships, and Steel. The reason that I chose this time period to look at the tools that these buccaneers were using, well, it's because... Things have changed drastically from the times of Francis Drake. Not only the political and religious landscape, but the tools that these men were using. The European powers were in something of an arms race. The most important factor in that arms race were the ships that they would be on board. But everything from the guns they were using to the supplies that the men on board had were highly important to see who would control the new world. And here, in the 1660s, we're seeing the first fruition of that arms race. We're seeing things change to what they will be in the golden age of piracy. Now, there will be some pretty stark differences between the 1660s and the early 1700s, but some of the things we're going to be talking about today can be applied not only to Captain Morgan, but to men like Blackbeard and Charles Vane. One of the primary differences, though, is exactly how these men saw themselves. When you're reading the histories about Captain Morgan and his brethren of the coast, the word privateer pops up a lot. But really, the word privateer wasn't coined until about the mid-18th century. So men like Francis Drake and Henry Morgan, who very much were privateers, would never even heard that word not thought of themselves as such. But it's still the best description that we have of what they were. Now, Francis Drake obviously worked directly for the Queen and her council. He was a royal man, but by the time of Captain Morgan, things were a bit less well-defined. In their early days, operating out of Tortuga, the Brethren of the Coast were outright pirates. They had no screen of legitimacy to hide behind. That was part of what made Jamaica so attractive to the Brethren of the Coast. They were safer than they were in Tortuga because there was less threat from Spanish ships, and while they had to sail under orders from the Admiral of the Jamaica Station, they essentially operated just as they had before, sometimes with better equipment than they'd ever had in their lives. They also had, through the Governor of Jamaica, a certain amount of royal authority. Now, that probably wouldn't have held up too well in a Spanish courtroom, but it allowed them to be much more bold than they ever had before and claim a lot better prizes. But to be clear, Jamaica and Port Royal weren't exactly high society. This was the farthest flung corner of the empire, and they operated essentially without any interference from London. There were supply requests and letters to the crown in London that wouldn't be answered and wouldn't even be found until sometimes decades later. The message to these men, these Brethren of the Coast, was clear. Their mission was to survive by any means necessary. Now, of course, the most important tool to, well, really anybody living in the Caribbean at the time, but especially the Brethren of the Coast, were their ships. It's important to take a look at exactly what ships they were on. They've changed so much over the past few decades. For many, many years, the most powerful ship sailing the high seas was the Spanish Galleon. The Spanish Galleon was an impeccably engineered ship, perfect for the Spanish Empire in the New World. It was very well-rounded. It was made for speed and durability. It had room for guns as well as large holds for hauling gold and other treasure across the Atlantic. And while it had all of these aspects which made them perfect, For the Spanish treasure fleet, they didn't really excel at any of these. These weren't specialized ships. The defeat of the Spanish Armada under Queen Elizabeth and Frances Drake showed Europe more what naval warfare was going to be in the century to come. All of the naval powers of Europe, but especially the Dutch and the English, began developing what could really be called warships. While the Galleon was a powerful vessel, it wasn't specialized enough to be a warship. The English warship was called the Man of War, colloquially. It was a ship that was larger and slower than any of the Spanish galleons, but it had much more room for guns by sacrificing its cargo holds. These ships were huge and imposing, really what could be described as a floating fortress, and they terrified anybody who had never seen one before. But as the ships began to evolve, so did the tactics of naval warfare. You see, it really since the dawn of naval warfare, ships focused mostly on speed and maneuverability. The goal was to ram another vessel as fast as possible and then board that vessel, killing anybody aboard and taking the ship for your own. That was how the Greeks and the Romans did it, and really that was how the Spanish and the English did it up until about the time of the Armada. But now that that time had passed, we were seeing things like durability and firepower come to the fore the European powers were moving towards something that they called the line of battle. This was a deeply complex naval military maneuver in which two fleets would come into contact on the high seas and then form up in these big, long, straight lines and then shoot at each other. And that's basically it. The reality is that the focus became more and more on hitting the other ship with cannons. However, it's really, really hard to hit a moving ship on the sea, so these admirals and captains just sort of sailed about a hundred or so ships and shot cannonballs at the other side's ships until one side sunk more than the other. Now, of course, eventually, naval tacticians would come up with much more advanced stuff, like what's called crossing the T. That's where a captain attempted to sail his ship uh, in a perpendicular fashion to another ship, kind of like the top of a capital T. If he were the top of the capital T, all of the guns on his broadside would be facing the other ship, who had maybe a couple of guns at her fore. So they would be able to catch that ship in a hail of cannon fire, with her being able to respond with hardly anything at all. It was a devastating tactic, but it didn't come around until some time later. Around the time of the Thirty Years' War back in Europe, the... Line of battle was really the height of naval tactics, and there really wasn't much to it. You see, it was these broadsides that are the big difference. Ships had always, of course, had guns on them, but now they were packing more and more guns, as much firepower as possible, on board their vessels. They called these ships, due to the line of battle, ships of the line, and broke their ships of the line down into different classifications. A first-class ship of the line would have been a terrifying sight to any enemy navy. These ships had three or four decks on them that were devoted entirely to cannon. When these ships fired a full volley, the air would be so filled with smoke that the ship would become almost invisible to their enemies, and consequently, their enemy ships would become invisible to them. Now, these decks would not have been pleasant places. This is a cramped space. They were trying to fit as many decks and as many guns on these ships as they could. There would have been very little light, virtually no sunlight. The only access to the outside were their gun ports. And the air inside would have been filled with gunpowder and the sound of explosions. These decks were so small that men couldn't even stand upright in them, and sometimes they would have ten or fifteen guns on both sides, and then the center of that deck would be filled with gunpowder and shot, things that they would need to light their cannon. I can think of few places that sound more terrifying to me than one of these gun decks. Very little light, probably unable to hear from the frequent sound of explosions, not only from your deck on both sides, but from the deck above you as well the air so filled with smoke that it's almost impossible to breathe, and really no way to see anything but the room around you. The only time that that changes is when the other side scores a hit on your vessel and holes open up into your ship, showing you the outside world. Now that might almost for a second seem like a gift because some of the smoke begins to roll out and you're able to see some of the light from the outside world until you realize that those holes are getting your ship closer and closer into sinking into the depths of Davy Jones' locker. And it would have been almost impossible to escape from these ships. If your ship begins to go down, there's going to be a scramble to climb up to the deck above you where there, there's going to be another scramble and the chaos of men dying and bleeding and screaming. You're not going to be able to make it to the top deck to swim away, and then when you are, hopefully you are close enough to shore to be able to swim. Working the gun decks of any of these large battleships for many of the great European powers seems like one of the most terrifying jobs in human history. That's why most of the men who were on board were not volunteers. These men were forced into service. These men were victims of the press gangs back in Europe. The lucky ones hoped to win their battle and head home. The unlucky ones hoped to win their battle and see land ever again. That land would have been halfway around the globe from home, but it would have been safer than on the back of a ship owned by the king. Now these ships, these first-class ships of the line, carried sometimes as many of a hundred or more cannon, and they were massively expensive. Not just expensive to build, but to sail and maintain as well. Any nation, though, that wanted to play at empire needed to build as many of these ships as possible. Whoever had the most and the best would rule the waves. But there were, of course, smaller ships as well. There were the second and third rate ships of the line that held slightly fewer guns. However, they were virtually the same ships, just with perhaps one less gun deck and a few less guns on board. But then there were still smaller ships... Ships that were less imposing, but using the right tactics, these vessels could be just as successful against the larger warships and the empires of old Europe. The most common and most prominent warship in the Caribbean was the frigate. Now, exactly what the name frigate implies is a little bit difficult to ascertain. According to Samuel Pepys, who was an English admiral that would, a few years after these events, categorize the English Navy into different subcategories, a frigate was a warship that was directly below the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th class ships of the line. In practice, according to the English, that meant that it was a three-masted vessel ship-rigged that carried one above-board gun deck. It was fast, it was maneuverable, but it still had quite a lot of firepower. Now the French and the Dutch had their own variations on the frigate, and the Spanish fregata had its own key differences. But essentially, what a frigate was, was a single-decked warship that was built low and long. These were very long, maneuverable vessels that could cut through the water unlike any other warship of their time. The frigate was the bread and butter of the men who lived in the Caribbean. At Port Royal, Jamaica, the best warships they had would likely have been the frigates. Admirals Mings and Mansvelt, and certainly Morgan, had frigates. These were their vessels. Later on, the greatest pirate ships we know of were frigates. For example, Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge was a frigate. One of these ships, under the command of one of these buccaneers, privateers, or pirates, made him a superstar that was able to take on the local navy. However, it was a difficult ship to come by. You had to be very lucky or highly skilled to get one of these out of the hands of the Spanish, English, Dutch, or French. Most pirates were unable to do so. They usually traveled in convoys, so there would be several frigates there, so a single pirate ship or even a group of pirate ships would be unlikely to take one. A more common pirate vessel that was a bit smaller than the frigate was the brig. A brig is a slightly smaller vessel that, instead of having a ship's three masts, only has two that are square-rigged. So it's quite quick and very light and carries a fair number of guns, but not nearly as many as a frigate and nowhere near as many as one of the larger ships of the line. But a brig, well, it started off as a modified brigantine. The brigantine was a vessel local to the Mediterranean that had the two masts as well as oar power to help it move. The brig had no oar power, but still kept only those two masts and the sail thereon. They were useful ships to the pirates, but not that common in the Caribbean during the golden age of piracy, so only a few notable pirates actually sailed on a brig. The most common type of vessel employed by most of the pirates in the Caribbean was the sloop. A sloop was a small and sleek vessel. It didn't have a ship's rigging either. It had fewer sails that were rigged to catch the wind. They would be able to go where larger vessels wouldn't be able to follow, up an inlet or a river or perhaps across one of the many Bahamanian sandbanks where any larger ship would run aground. These were vessels for pirates who preferred to take what they could and run, while a pirate who had a frigate had the ability to stand their ground and frighten away any potential hunters that didn't have a larger vessel or a fleet. The sloop was the quintessential pirate vessel. It carried enough guns to frighten merchant ships, sink smaller vessels, and anybody that it could not defeat run away at the fastest pace possible. It had a small amount of cargo space, but not enough to carry cotton or sugar or tobacco, at least not enough to make any money. It did have enough room, however, for the necessaries, rum and guns and gold. Now, Captain Morgan himself most likely sailed a frigate. He was, at this time, second in line to be Admiral of the Jamaica Station, so he would have sailed a ship that was a little bit more worthwhile. However, the other three men in his fleet, those friends that he had sold his vessels to, were sailing either a brig for one of them, or the other two what really should have been classified as a sloop. Now, the sloops would have been carrying just enough to sustain the men on board, but the larger vessels, the frigate and the brig, would have had cargo space allotted for, well, anything that they managed to take from the Spanish, as well as all of their necessary victuals. Most notably the rum. Now, alcohol on board a sailing vessel was a tradition that was really an essential tradition that dated back to time immemorial. Now, until the year 1655 and the English invasion of Jamaica, the English usually carried on board French brandy. Brandy was really the first distilled alcohol, the first hard liquor in the world. You see, French wine manufacturers were shipping a lot of their wine to and from the New World. However, this wine takes up a lot of space. Wine barrels are huge and heavy and aren't exactly economic to ship across the Atlantic Ocean. So they were looking for a way to more economically ship their wine. They decided the best way to go about this was to dehydrate some of the water that was in the wine and ship it across the ocean where it could be reconstituted back into its good wine self. However, that's not exactly how it worked out. I like to imagine one French sailor, late at night, singing on deck, found by his comrades with a huge stupid grin on his face and an open cask of concentrated wine next to him inviting his friends to come and share a drink with him. Brandy, which was the name for this concentrated and distilled wine, caught on like wildfire in the New World. At first, it caught on primarily among sailors, who thought it was just a fantastic drink that really took all their woes away, but these sailors brought it into port, and then many of the people in these New World colonies found it just as fantastic. They also discovered that the longer it aged in the oak wine barrels, the better and better it tasted, and sometimes they would let casks of brandy sit for as long as they could stand before trying it, and that was the best brandy of all. Rum was probably the very next type of hard alcohol made. Its base ingredient was discovered by Jamaican slaves on sugar plantations. You see, the process of refining sugar creates a byproduct called molasses that the plantation owners had no use for. Now, the process of refining sugar is an extremely dangerous and often painful, if not deadly, occupation for the slaves, so the slaves needed something to take their woes away. They took this molasses, which the slave owners didn't need, and fermented it. This created a thick, sweet, and highly alcoholic drink. But the Europeans decided to take it a step further. They took the process of distillation, which they used for brandy, and applied that to this molasses-based alcohol. This was the basis of modern rum. The island of Jamaica was rich in sugar plantations and also had several rum distilleries. The Englishmen, upon seizing Jamaica, found themselves swimming in the stuff, they had not only all the raw materials needed, but all the infrastructure to produce as much rum as they could drink. So in effect, the English colony at Jamaica became the center for Caribbean rum production in the 17th century. Now, obviously, they shipped and sold this rum all over the world, but the Royal Navy put it to good use there in Jamaica. Under their Jamaican pirate admirals, they began a policy of serving a ration of rum called a tot or a toddy to their sailors every day. This traditional ration was probably not given to them initially to give them something to drink, but to keep them from drinking too much. Now, years later, George Washington, during the American Revolution, would order a tot of rum given to his soldiers. And the English Navy would actually continue this practice of giving rum to their sailors until the year 1970. Now, while the Jamaican pirate admirals put this into full effect, the tradition actually dated back to the time of Francis Drake. If you recall in one of our previous episodes, Drake actually discovered a drink that the natives used when his men were coming down with scurvy. It combined a medicinal tree bark tea that the natives employed and lime juice, which Drake then decided to mix with a small amount of rum. This was really the world's first cocktail. It was called, at the time, the Eldrake, and it was the basis for the modern mojito. Now, Richard Hawkins, the son of the famous John Hawkins, made it official naval policy to have all of the ingredients for making the Eldraque on board to cure men who might come down with one of the terrible diseases at sea. This was the precursor not only of the Eldraque but of a drink that wouldn't actually be invented for about a century yet, a drink that would become ubiquitous, on-board naval vessels. That would be grog. Now, grog would come after the time of the Golden Age of Piracy, but essentially what it was was a drink that took rum and lime juice, very similar to the Eldrake, and mixed that, instead of with medicinal tea bark, with a, a light beer, so that it would hydrate, protect against scurvy, and keep the men nice and drunk, so that they could do their work free of pain. This sounds like a spectacular drink. To be sure, the hard-drinking buccaneers with Henry Morgan were loading all of the ingredients for the Eldrake on board their vessel. They didn't know exactly what might happen to them at sea, and these were necessary and highly available on the island of Jamaica. Now, in addition to the rum, they would have had jugs of fresh water that they would try to stretch as long as possible. However, fresh water at sea isn't going to last very long, no matter how you try to store it. So, to keep themselves hydrated, they would have had jugs of alcoholic beverages that were very low in alcoholic content. This would have been something similar to about 2% beer. Just enough to keep any bacteria from growing and souring the water. Now, this beer would have been not exactly like a bottle of PBR they probably wouldn't have used any of the ingredients that we're used to in beer today. There would have been no hops in it, first of all, but it also likely wasn't even made with traditional grains. They would have used local ingredients to make as much of it as possible. It's entirely possible that they had beer made out of the molasses, similar to what the slaves drank on the plantations, but much more likely, because they were the brethren of the coast, they drank some of their traditional beverages. First of all, they would have probably had a sweet potato beer, or a yam beer. You see, sweet potatoes were a staple food in the Caribbean at the time. And it wasn't only eaten, it was also made into a hearty and slightly alcoholic drink. Now this is different from the sweet potato beer you can get today, and I fully intend to make some and try it out before too long. The other drink they probably would have had that I also very much want to try would have been a palm wine made from local palm trees that sounds thick and creamy and almost sickly sweet, but much more alcoholic than the yam beer. Now, they probably wouldn't have mixed that with the water because it sounds like they both would have soured, but these are all of the alcoholic drinks that they would have had on board. The rum, they would have kept drinking that too... A minimum, unless they were celebrating something, because really they had to be on their toes. They never knew when they were going to run across a patrol that they had to run from at top speed. Then, after that, they would have loaded on board all of their foodstuffs. Most importantly, for any ship going to sea, they would have loaded on board hardtack, which was a biscuit made out of flour and water, and sometimes salt, that was baked four times until it was an unbelievably dense cracker a cracker that would never go bad and was extremely nutrient-dense. Now, this food has a lot of nicknames that sailors gave it throughout the years, and most of them are some variation of tooth cracker or jawbreaker. It appears that the only way to actually make this food edible is if you soaked it in a small amount of salt water or, more commonly, coffee on board. Now, in addition to the hardtack, they'd also have loaded quite a bit of salted meat on board. This would have been almost certainly pork, because there was probably no beef on the island of Jamaica at the time, and there were quite a few pigs that the Brethren of the Coast were adept at shooting from their time on Tortuga. So they would have had a fair amount of what amounted to very hard pork jerky. But these two types of foodstuff, while they would have been well-known to all of the sailors in Captain Morgan's fleet, were not what they were likely going to be eating. These were really nothing more than a last resort. These were foods to be eaten if the ships were becalmed or lost at sea, and they had no other way of getting food. You see, the buccaneers would have put on board enough fresh food to last them a few days, perhaps a week, however long the food would stay fresh. And then, after that, they were mostly going to subsist on tortoise. Fresh tortoise, which they could catch almost anywhere in the Caribbean or the New World. These tortoises were so common that nearly every visitor to the Caribbean, in their writings afterward, would make a mention of them. Columbus did, saying that the bays he stopped in were so filled with tortoises that they made a racket that kept the men from sleeping as they banged against the hull of the ship. Exquimelon said they were, quote, very good to eat, end quote, and another visitor said, quote, The choice of all for fine eating is the turtle or sea tortoise. The flesh looks and eats very much like choice veal, but the fat is of a green color, very luscious and sweet. The liver is likewise green, very wholesome, searching, and purging." End quote. So their diet would have consisted primarily of rum, stale water, fermented yam juice, hard crackers, pig jerky, and fresh turtle meat. Yum! A pirate's life for me. However, I do have a plan, in fact, to put out a video where I make, try, and review some of these pirate victuals. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to eat any turtle meat, but I am going to try some pork jerky, some hard tack, several of these pirate beverages, and several other pirate-themed drinks I can get my hands on, as well as a selection of rum. Me and a few friends are going to try these out, make a video of it, and put the results on YouTube, because why not? But most of what we've talked about so far, sloops and frigates, hardtack and fresh tortoise meat, these were par for the course for really any sailor in the Caribbean at the time. So what is it that sets the buccaneers apart? Well, most notably, it's how they modified their ships. Historian Stephan Talty writes, quote, The first order of business was to rip out the wooden bulkheads in the holds, which were used in merchant ships to keep barrels and trunks from sliding. Cabins, first class, and steerage were gutted, creating an open space below decks For reasons both piratical, to accommodate large numbers of men these ships often carried And philosophical, pirates were democrats and decreed that no man should have better quarters than the next Carpenters would reinforce the deck to support extra cannon and cut slots in the hold for guns Or mount them fore and aft as chasers, cannon that could be fired on anyone trying to pursue or escape them Above board, the forecastle and any superstructure behind, in seamen's terms, abaft the mainsail was removed, as were the cabins, roundhouses, and the stern, creating a clear deck ideal for boarding vessels or stashing excess numbers of privateers' captives or booty. Finally, the rig of the converted vessel could be altered by a step in the mainmast aft for increased power in the wind. Pirates adored speed; an extra knot could mean the difference between riches and hanging, like grease monkeys cackling as they dropped a supercharged v twelve into their father's vintage olds. The brethren took a stock mercantile vessel and made it into a thing built to fly. End quote. Now, the thing that truly set these ships apart is partly what Stefan Tolte was talking about there, the rigging. The rigging is called today Jamaica rigging, which was, at the time, the fastest rigging in the world. That rigging, in addition to the fact that these ships were built not out of heavy English oak, but out of much lighter Caribbean cedar, made these ships the fastest ships anywhere known. Some years later, but still during the Age of Sail and even in the Golden Age of Piracy, that Jamaica rigging would be slightly modified into something called the Bermuda rigging, which is still today used by sailors in sailing races across the world. These ships were so fast that they would be used throughout the Age of Piracy into the American Revolution as blockade runners and even up until the American Civil War and the Spanish-American War. These are ships so fast that they are even used well into the age of steam power because they can outrun the fastest steamships out there. Now there was something else, one other thing that differentiates the Brethren of the Coast from common mariners, and it also puts them in kind of a stark contrast to the pirates of the Golden Age of Piracy. It was their weapons. A typical merchant vessel in the region would have been armed, but poorly. A Spanish vessel, for example, would have made for a ripe target to the Brethren. On board, that merchant vessel would have had no cannon. They would have only had a few nearly useless firearms. You see, the Spanish government strictly regulated firearms in their colonies, at least for the colonials. They didn't want anybody there getting ideas of rebellion and jeopardizing their trade in gold and silver. The Navy, however, was a bit better supplied, but it was so weak by the year 1660 that they couldn't defend Spanish interests at all. The captains of these Spanish merchant vessels would have carried a sword, but for most of them, it's unlikely that their crew would have been armed with anything past a knife to prevent the possibility of a mutiny. Now, their firearms, which they did have, were the Arquebus, which was a design dating back to the pre-Elizabethan days. It dates back in parts of Asia, even earlier, into the High Middle Ages. The arquebus we've discussed before, but it was a long-barreled gun with a hook to help stabilize it. And it had what amounted to little more than an open reservoir for the gunpowder. It was essentially a very small caliber cannon that worked to repel boarding parties in Francis Drake's day, but now it was very outdated. Unlike the Spanish, the Dutch and the French and the English didn't have the same restrictions on firearms. The Dutch and French were making some of the best firearms in the world. The Thirty Years' War, as well as the English Civil War, saw the rise of a class of soldier called the musketeers. They used much, much better firearms than the arquebus. They used, naturally, the musket, which was a long-barreled firearm that had a flared muzzle, which made it much easier to load, and it was made to be carried by hand, unlike the arquebus, and also made to be fired quickly. The first major advance to the musket was the matchlock design. This was essentially a trigger attached to a lit wick that would be dropped onto the powder reservoir, which would light it on fire. It made it a lot easier to fire and kept you from having an entire other step in the firing process. But it still wasn't perfect. A burning match would give away your position, especially at night. It wasn't a stealth firearm. So the next step was the wheel lock, which improved upon that design, but that paled in comparison to the flintlock musket. If you in your mind's eye right now picture a pirate gun, a pistol, or a musket, it's a flintlock design. This was the cutting edge of firearm technology. It was reliable, it was fast, and it was accurate. Well, it was relatively accurate. It was accurate for the time. You see, the musketeers, that class of soldiers, well, they weren't sharpshooters. In battle, they were trained to load quickly to point their guns in a general direction and fire. Rinse, reload, repeat. The buccaneers of Tortuga, however, were some of the best shots in the world. You see, on Tortuga, before the Brethren of the Coast became buccaneers, they were hunters by trade. Alexander Exquimelin writes, "Hunters go off in groups of seven or eight, one man carrying all the guns and another leading the hounds. One of the party stays on his own at the Bukan to look after the goods, smoke the flesh, grind salt, and do the cooking against the return of the rest of the party. They kill great numbers of animals, sometimes shooting a hundred wild swine in a morning, only to take seven or eight of them, because in general they prefer to have sows." That's perhaps six or seven men hunting and killing perhaps a hundred boar in a morning, using probably matchlock but perhaps flintlock muskets from the 17th century. If any of that's true, then these men are amazing shots. Now, you might be thinking that these were just a bunch of guys exaggerating their hunting tales, kind of like that time that I caught a hundred-pound catfish by myself barehanded. And yeah, there's probably some of that in there. But then again, the victims of the buccaneers mention time and again their prowess and accuracy at shooting their muskets. So there must have been something to how good they were using their guns. They were reported to, on command, shoot down a Spaniard in the rigging of the other vessel while at sea, reload, and then fire again quickly. That's a feat that none of the musketeers back in Europe would have been able to perform. But if that separates the buccaneers from the more typical merchants and seamen of the era, what separates the buccaneers from the later golden age pirates? Well, first of all, it's their choice to use muskets over pistols primarily. Now, certainly they all had both, the musket and the pistol with them, but the later pirates were well known for carrying multiple pistols, perhaps a sash with as many as four to six pistols on it, and perhaps a musket or two among them, if they could spare the space. The buccaneers, on the other hand, all had a musket with them, and only the captain or some of the better shots might have a musket to shoot again below decks if necessary. Something that I think most of us would notice almost immediately, though, would be the difference in their swords. Now, on board a ship, nearly every man from Europe carried a cutlass. But the cutlass carried by the buccaneers under Captain Morgan and the one carried by, say, Calico Jack Rackham would have been very different animals. They were both one-sided blades that were slightly curved and had something of a handguard. This was typical of every naval blade. However, the cutlass being used by Blackbeard or Jack Sparrow is an elegant weapon from a more civilized age. The cutlass used by Captain Morgan would have been something that looks to our eyes a lot more like a common machete with a small handguard on it. Which is because more frequently than being used as a weapon on board a ship, it would have actually been used as a machete. Now certainly, on board a ship, if they had run out of shot and powder, they would have pulled their cutlass and used it on any man that dared to oppose them, but more often than not, the cutlass was used to cut underbrush. They were only used in violence if truly absolutely necessary. You see, that highlights really the key difference between the buccaneers and the golden age pirates. The Buccaneers of America engaged in piracy and took unbelievable amounts of loot at sea, but their primary occupation, more than pirates, especially under Captain Morgan, was soldiering. The most stark difference in the armaments between the Buccaneers and the later pirates was the fact that all of these Buccaneers carried with them pikes. Long, steel-tipped spears, very similar to all of those used in the English Civil War, a conflict in which Henry Morgan probably learned how to lead men on the battlefield which is where he would be leading these men primarily. They would fight at sea if necessary and take vessels if they needed wine, water, or lumber. But really, what Captain Morgan was leading these men into was not a fight at sea, but he was leading them to the Spanish main to carry their pikes and their cutlasses and their muskets and bring them to bear on unsuspecting Spanish settlements. And they would prove to be very, very good at it. I hope this gives you an idea of what the buccaneers under Henry Morgan of the early 1660s were loading onto their vessels. They certainly prepared well, because the raid that was coming would go down in history as a raid that rivaled or even surpassed the greatest raids of Sir Francis Drake. Next week, we'll set sail with Captain Morgan on his voyage to Villa Hermosa and the Spanish Maine. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank especially everybody that has supported the show, either through the PayPal button on our website or becoming a patron on Patreon. I'd like to go ahead and give a shout out to those of you who have. That's Andrew, Garrett, Talon, Brandon, Brad, Philip, Strohs, Adam, Barton, Mark, Anders, Patrick, Keith, Preston, Dave, Levi, and Emma, Rasmus, Bill, Heather, and Linda. All of you guys on Patreon really help keep this show afloat, and we appreciate all of you. There was a hiccup in the first major reward planned for those of you on Patreon. However, we are back on track. We've got an artist working on that map of the Caribbean, which is looking spectacular. In the next few days, I'm going to post pictures of it to Patreon and to Twitter and to Facebook, and then I'm going to go ahead and send everybody who has pledged their support on Patreon thus far a copy of that. If you'd like to support the show, there are many other ways to do it. We really appreciate everybody out there who has left a review or a rating on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or any of the other places people listen to the podcast. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying that music, I suggest you go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over and check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or SoundCloud. Most importantly, to everybody out there, thank you for listening.